Okay, we're going to spend a little bit of time um, this morning. We're going to open God's Word together. I would massively encourage you, we're going to read some Scripture. So grab a Bible. If you're at home, get your Bible with you. If you're here, get your Bible. If you're a phone Bible person, that's fine. Use your phone Bible, um, but, but grab hold of it because we're going to read through some scriptures together. We're going to finish our series around this meal that we've, been, um, we've kind of been focusing on for the last six weeks, really, this idea of communion, um, coming to the table, coming and receiving a meal that was provided for us by Christ himself. And so we've been focusing on the bread and on the wine and on the ways in which we approach the table. And today we're going to think about this idea that as we come to the table, we are a people that are expectant for the end of the days. We're a people who look forwards into all that God is yet to do amongst us. And I can tell you, our future is incredibly bright if we are in Christ Jesus. If you're here today, if you're listening online, your future is incredibly bright if you are in Christ Jesus. He has been victorious and he is coming back. He is going to make all things new and we get to see and enjoy the goodness of that for all eternity. Our future is incredibly bright. No matter the circumstance of life that we face now or the past that we've once been in, the future that we look forward to full of expectation and anticipation of the fact that Jesus is coming to make all things new. Amen. (laughs) It's good. This is good news for us. This is something that we look to. So let's just read um, 1 Corinthians 11. We're going to read verses 23 and 26. We're going to consider this idea that we're a people that are to look forward to something. So Jesus says this, On the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We've thought about this idea of when we approach the table, we remember something. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This is the new covenant that is in my blood." Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim, we've already said this, we proclaim something of who he is, the Lord's death until he comes. We are meant to continue doing this until Jesus returns. And he's not here yet. So we're still called to remember him in this meal with one another, in this act of common union, this act of thanksgiving, to return to the table once again until Jesus comes back. See, there's a book in the Bible called Hebrews. And in Hebrews, the writer tries to teach us a little lesson about life. And he says that life is a bit like a race. And actually, it's not a race against each other. The world would teach you that, the, that life is a bit of a race that we go on. And really, it's how can we beat one another? It's a dog-eat-dog world. Who's going to win the race? Who's going to beat me? How can I make sure that I get ahead of this person? How can I make sure that that person doesn't trip me up? Hebrews isn't writing about a race like that. He's not trying to say, here's a race against each other. Make sure that you beat the other person. Make sure that that person doesn't cause you to stumble or to fall. The race is about What's the prize that you're running for? That's what Hebrews is trying to write about. He's trying to say, actually, where's the finish line? What happens in that moment in which I burst through the finish tape into glory and I say, my race is done? I've finished running. What do I receive at that point? 
What happens to me as I burst through the tape of that line? And actually, we've got two finish lines that could come before us, or, or there's two options for a finish line. The finish line is either death or Jesus returns. That's the finish line. It's either the day that I die and I go to be with him for all eternity and I sit before the judgment throne of God or he returns. That's the finish line for all runners. Every single runner comes to that point. When they hit this place, they say either I'm dead or Christ has returned. You see, there's, a, there's, there's quite an interesting little bit about this. So I used to teach a little bit of sport when I was younger. And when you're teaching sport, you realize that the way that you run in races is really significant and important. So at the very beginning of the race, you're told to get quite low, to get into the blocks, to have your head down and to focus upon your feet a little bit, to try and get yourself up and into the lanes you start to go. But if you continue to run in a manner where all you're doing is looking down at the circumstances that you've got around you, just focusing on your feet, you don't run very efficiently and effectively. Do you know the best way to run efficiently and effectively is to do what with your head? Get it up. Lift your head up. If you're running a race with your head down, actually it really slows down your ability in which to run. The best way to run, and if you watch all sprinters, their heads focus towards the end of the line. They normally have a point fixed that they look at and their head does not move. The arms and the legs are pumping as they go, but they are staring towards the finish point. They know where they're going. Communion is called to do this every single time, to cause us to be a people who lift our heads up and look to the finish line and we sprint, not distracted by that that is to the right or to the left, not seeing what the other runners do, by saying, where does my finish point lie? And I'm keeping my eyes on that moment. And by staring at it and looking at it and seeing it, my whole race is then led towards that point in which I'm going. I don't think we think about that like with death. Just don't think we do. I think that often we run the race constantly looking around. What's going on over here today? I wonder what's going on over that side. I wonder what little bit of news I can watch to distract me. Or what little hobby I can take up to go through life just to pass the days as we go. Wow, what moments in which we sit. And I think that's what this is meant to do a little bit. To bring us back to this certain clarity of where is my race headed. Where am I going? Where are my eyes looking? What am I fixed upon? How's that causing me to run the race as I go through? You see, if you just continue to run the race by looking down, actually, it's very, very easy to get tripped up by the things of this world. I think we even find that, you know, the journey that we go through often in worship like this, in, in gathered meetings, it's a, real, it's a really tricky place to start worship when what you do is you talk about how you feel in the presence of life. I think Rob sent a little message a minute ago during the meeting about saying, you know, life, it rains sometimes, it's sunny some days. Life's up, life's down. Things happen, things go along. If I base everything upon my feelings, I'm constantly in this moment where actually all I'm doing is looking at the floor as I'm running. I'm looking to what's around me in the moments that I live in. Is it raining today? Is it sunny? Is it good? Is it bad? Is that, th- oh, is that part of my body aching? I think I'm getting sick. I think I've got this wrong with me. Oh, am I worried about what am I going to do to pay that bill? Of course we live in a real world in which we, we process the things that we go on. But that is not the best way to run the Christian life. Best way, and whenever we start in a place of worship, is to lift our eyes up. Who's Christ? What's he done? What's the great story of history? 
What's the great story of the future? What's the gospel? What's that leading me towards? Because when I do that, I lift my eyes to the author, the perfecter of my faith, the one who was there at the very beginning, the one who is going to greet me as I burst through the finished tape into glory, the one in which all history has been all about, and all of a sudden I run in a very different manner. I start to consider this fact that he is the great prize that I run for. He is the one that I long to know in all that I do. You know, why as well is this, is this something I'm just, I'm reflecting on this? It always gets deepened in me because on Tuesday, I'll be conducting a, a funeral here at this building. And I'm sitting with Andy this morning and his family around him because a couple of weeks ago, Andy's dad, Steve, died. And that brings great sadness. Of course it does. Andy, you would be lying to us if you said these last few weeks haven't been hard. Of course they have because we miss someone. We miss someone that's no longer with us anymore. But it's not just sadness. It's a great joy. Because he's now more alive than he ever was. And when we run the race well for Christ, and we burst through the finish tape into glory, just as Steve has, all of the heavenly hosts and all of creation cheers and celebrates. He's made it. He's made it through the finish tape to glory. He's here. He's been victorious in Christ. He's made it until the day that he died. And that is going to be true for every single one of us. Every single one of us is a runner, whether we like it or not. We're all in the great race of life in which we run through. And your finish table will either be the day that you die, as Steve did a few weeks ago, or Jesus will return. And he might come now. And again, we don't live like that very often. Because quite often, we just sort of think of that as a concept that may or may not occur. Oh, the Bible's got something to say about Jesus coming back. That is a firm reality, the same certainty that I have that every single one of us will die or Jesus will return. There is a certainty that he is coming back. And so we run in that way. We run with our eyes on that prize. We run with our mentality fixed towards that, with eyes locked in and locked on upon the day that Jesus comes back and how we run in a race which symbolizes that to us. So let me read you what Hebrews has to say. I'm going to read from the message translation, um, which you may or may not have on you. But this is, this, is, this is kind of what the writer is saying about this race of life. Do you see what this means? This is, sorry, Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 3 from the message. Do you see what this means? All these pioneers who blazed the way, all these veterans cheering us on, it means we better get on with it. We better strip down, start running, never quit. No extra spiritual fat, no parasitic sin. Keep your eyes on Jesus, who both began and finished the race that we're in. Study how he did it because he never lost sight of where he was headed. That exhilarating finish line in and with God. He could put up with anything along the way. Cross, shame, whatever. And now he's there in the place of honour right alongside God. When you, when you find yourself flagging in your faith, go over that story again, item by item. That long litany of hostility that he plows through, that will shoot adrenaline into your souls. Focusing on the gospel is like a shot of adrenaline straight into the system. Where you say, I'm running. Get me back up. I'm running again because I'm running for the greatest prize that I could have ever been called into. Christ has now bought me at a great cost to himself so I could run for the prize of knowing him in all that I do. Our life is defined by that. And they're the sort of things, that's better than a coffee espresso in the morning. 
That's better than listening to loud, pumped up music. That's better than going out for your morning jog. Is focusing on this idea. It's better than your moment of meditation when you might sit there and say, I'm in my stillness. Is remembering the good news of the gospel and all that Christ has done. And that is a shot of adrenaline into your body and into your chest and into your soul, which says, my life is pointed for this and this alone. Everything else now is secondary to the good news of all that Christ is doing. You see, and then you might ask these little questions, and this is a, it's a really funny one, the last year and a bit. Um, some of you might have gone down this road. Some of you might have had conversations with people. We haven't been at the pub very much. You don't have these weird pub conversations, really. But a lot of people will say, do you know the end's coming tomorrow? Because look, dot, 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 dot. Can't you tell the end of the race is going to be at this point? Can't you tell? And, and we do, as, as human beings, we like to try and work out and guess and think through, well, when's the end line going to be? Just as certain as you don't quite know the day that you're going to die, we don't really know the day that Jesus is going to return. He teaches us that. I don't know. I don't know the day that he's going to return. And so my challenge is not to listen to messages like this and then try and think, well, I wonder when the race is going to finish. I wonder if, I wonder if that volcanic eruption is actually a sign from Revelation that Jesus is coming back at this point. I wonder if all of a sudden just the temperature of the world in which we're going in now is pointing towards we're all in the end times. But in the end times, since Jesus returned, for the last 2,000 years, we have lived in the end times, waiting with eager anticipation, saying, Jesus, come back today. That's my prayer. Or I'm trying to work out when will it be. What clues have I got to work out? Is it, it going to be on February the 22nd, 2022? I don't know. <laughs> no, but what I do do is I say, Jesus, I live like today. I want you to come back. Or today might be my final day. I might die today. I might die tomorrow. My finish line might come at this point, but I act in a way in which I look forward with an eager anticipation, not full of fear and worry and apprehension, full of joy and expectation that when he comes back, he's going to make all things new. Every tear that was in my eye is going to get wiped away. Every sad thing that once was is going to get swallowed up in victory because Christ is here and he's returned. So I anticipate that and I expect it and I look forward to it. See, it's a really helpful way that I started to, someone just pointed this out to me a few years ago, just the way that you can look at the little trajectory of the way in which the world has gone. So I think it will appear on, on the screen a little bit. Sam's got a little slide for it. Um, in Eden, the very beginning of the race, the story, Eden is a place in which all of us were able to sin. You know, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden with the fruit that surrounds them, with life that's been set before them, in all of its goodness and fame, there was an ability for them to be able to sin. They could choose to go and eat from the tree. They could choose it. There was an ability to sin at that point. And then they did. They had an ability to sin and they chose to sin. And then, they, then we live, in, as a result, in this world, in a fallen, broken world, separated from the love of God. And in those bits, we are then unable not to sin. It's not even just that we're able to sin anymore. We are unable not to sin. Can't do it. You try your hardest. You know, before you're a follower of Christ, you, and, and even being a follower of Christ, so often as you're following him and you're running your race in this manner, in this way, you just say, I can't, I can't seem to stop myself. I can't seem to stop myself from these things that just entangle me and define and shape my life. I know they're not pleasing to God. I know they're not helpful to me. And yet I still can't help doing it. Because we live in a fallen world, which we're now unable to not sin. But what does Christ do? Because in Christ, 
he then enables us not to sin. That is amazing. What a transformation. That is like this moment in which you change. In your, it's like running in the lanes of a race. And actually, again, if you're doing long distance running, you don't want to stay on the outside of the track very long because you're running a further distance. It's like it's all of a sudden, it's like this moment in which you've just been pulled in. You think, what? I've been enabled not to sin. I now have the power of Christ at work in me that now enables me to live a life free of the sins of before. Do I still struggle? Yeah, because I live in a fallen world and because I'm human and because I find, this, I find these struggles against the flesh so difficult in my life. But now, praise God, I have this supernatural ability working in me in Christ Jesus to now be enabled not to sin in the things that I do. But where's the story going? The story is going that on resurrection, for Steve Thornett now, upon resurrection, he is unable to sin. That is a transformation from the beginning. The very beginning, even in Eden, there was an ability to sin. In the new heavens and the new earth, when Christ returns, we will be unable to sin. We'll be unable to hurt one another. We'll be unable to to fall short of the, the, the call of God in our lives. All of these things will be united once again to himself because we'll be dwelt in his presence for all eternity. That is the transformation we've gone on. And actually, that's what I think is a much more important question to be saying, where am I at the moment? You know, I, I guess this room is probably full of followers of Jesus that are in Christ, enabled not to sin. But I tell you what, we live in a fallen world in which there are still many. Maybe you watching today. Maybe watching going, I still feel unable not to sin. Do you know the best thing about Jesus? Hello, Olivia. <laughs> Do you know one of the best things about Jesus is that the qualifying criteria to be part of his team to be enabled not to sin is faith. It's not how fast you can run. It's not whether you can beat someone else. It's not wherever or not you've got the right shoes or spikes on. You bought the right equipment to run in the race. It's faith in him. And that comes from hunger, desiring, Jesus, I need you. I can't do this on my own. I trust that you are the one and only son of the living God. I trust that you died and that you rose again on my behalf. I trust and put my faith in the fact that you are returning to make all things new. I believe in you. You're my captain. You're the, you're the person I now live my life for. And Jesus says, you're qualified. You're in. You're now in Christ Jesus. And once you're in Christ, everything has changed. You're now part of this team that is now enabled not to sin and you will then live into an eternity in which you will be unable to sin for all of eternity. See, how good is that? And the point is, is that this meal is meant to do that every time that we take it. Every time that we take communion, it's meant to be a little trigger once again to say, get your head up, church. Christian, get your head up. Look where you're going. He's coming back. Do this until he comes. Keep going. Jesus is coming. Jesus has enabled you now to live a life without sin. And one day he's going to remove all ability to sin from you for all eternity. He's going to make all things new. It's on its way. It's coming. Eat the bread. Drink the wine. Come on, do it, church. Remember, this is a mechanism in which we do. And actually, I think that one of the strongest mechanisms is this part of it. I said it in week one. This idea that something about the cup, the wine, is very, very significant in the way that actually it lifts my gaze towards the future hope of glory that I got. You see, Jesus did this at the Feast of the Passover. So he did, he gathered with his disciples at his Feast of Passover, this idea of remembering 
when they walked out of Egypt with one another and actually this Passover lamb, this pure and spotless lamb that was slain on their behalf and the blood over the doorpost protected them. See, this blood of Christ protects us. This is our, this is like our little stripes, our, our banner, our colours that we now wear. We're now those that are in Christ. The blood of Christ now covers us in all that we do. So this wine that we drink with one another, this cup that we lift, actually that in and of itself, that's why it's meant to be a tactile thing that smelt and tasted because it's meant to be another reminder once again. And so let's look for a little clue about that night of Passover. This is Matthew 26. So again, if you've got your Bibles, you might just turn Matthew 26, 26 to 29. This is the words of Jesus that he speaks that night in which he ordains this meal and tells them to remember him in this way. And he says, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it. That's what we read from Corinthians earlier. And he gave it to the disciples and he said to them, take, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, this is the bit, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus is pointing us at that very moment. He's saying, I'm coming back and I'm not going to drink of this anymore until I come back and you're going to enjoy it for all eternity in my new kingdom with my Father in heaven, and you're going to be welcomed in, us in. So Jesus at that moment, he's saying, look, get your head up. Look to the very ends. Look to where this whole story is going. Look to where this race is going to be run. And when we turn in that, let's turn again to Revelation 19. This is the final book of the Bible. This is the book, this is the book that really does start to give us a bit of a perspective of where we're going. It's this kind of prophetic book of looking forwards. And saying, well, what's that really going to be like? Jesus, what are you talking about? What's it going to be like when you return? So this is Revelation 19, verses 6 to 9. It says this, And then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. All of eternity finishes with a marriage meal. That's where it points towards. A marriage supper. A moment in which the brides, the church, the people of God, are united with their bridegroom, Christ himself. And what are we going to drink on that day? Wine, as a celebration, as an act of joy of saying, Christ the bridegroom has made the bride ready. We are being made ready in pure linen, in the righteous deeds of being saved. Actually now we're called now to be enabled not to sin. Our righteous deeds now are a preparing of the people of God to be pure and spotless and beautiful for the day in which we're going to drink the wine with him at the eternal marriage feast. 
You know, these are beautiful imagery. I've got Esme sitting over there. Esme, you and Michael getting married next weekend. Your marriage is not just about you guys getting married next weekend. As joyous as it is, you're also pointing towards that day when we're saying, do you know what? Life is not just about the marriage of Esme and Michael, although it will be marriage of the century. It's also about the fact that marriage is about Christ and his church, Jesus and his people. Jesus coming back to say, we've got this new wine that we're going to enjoy together. And I'm sure you will at your, at your wedding. You're going to celebrate with wine. And you're going to say, this is a joyous day. All of eternity is waiting for the day when they say, what a joyous day that Jesus returns and makes all things new and is united with his people. Jesus is declaring, this is the kind of incredible bit about it, is that there is an amazing connection between wines and weddings, and that is not wasted on Jesus. Let's ask you, a, this is not a rhetorical question, what was Jesus' first miracle that he performed? At a wedding. Jesus transforms water into wine at a wedding. There's something significant here that Jesus is trying to say, this is the first thing I could have done. I could have, I could have raised Lazarus on my first, on my first miracle. I could have healed a leper. I could, have, I could have done any of these things that are going to cross. But I chose to announce my entry back into the world to say, here I am. Is to say, I'm going to turn water into wine and I'm going to do it at a wedding. Because he wanted to draw our attention to this fact. Jesus is saying, actually... I'm the new wine. I'm the wine. I'm not just the bridegroom, I'm also the wine. I'm the one that you get to enjoy the goodness of. And you know what? Old wineskins can't contain it. You know, that's what on the day when he turns this water into wine, he's saying, look what I'm doing. I'm changing these old things to something new. I'm showing my power and victory at this wedding feast. I'm showing that I'm here. The one that this is all about, I'm here. And the old wineskins, they can't contain it. Something about me, I'm good. I'm pure. I can't be held by the things of this world. I am an uncontrollable God. And you know, the best thing is that we get to taste it now in part. We'll enjoy it in full when he returns or when we die. We will. We're going to enjoy the full taste of the wine. But for now, we get to taste a little bit in part of what a new kingdom is going to be like what the goodness is going to be like. Every time we gather together and we share communion and we break bread and we, and we drink the wine, actually in these things we're declaring this new covenant and we're expecting this new kingdom that's on its way and we're saying one day we're going to enjoy it with one another for all eternity in all of its fullness. We're going to have a little taster as church, as family with one another now but we're also looking forward to the day when we get to drink it in all its fullness and all its richness and all its goodness because Christ will be here with his people. Again, this is an amazing little prophetic word from a book called Amos in the Old Testament. One of the minor prophets just says through, he says this, Behold, the days are coming. <laughs> Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper. And the treader of grapes, him who sows the seeds. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with it. When God judges the old creation, he covers it with water. But when Jesus resurrects the new, it will be covered in wine. Wow! What amazing truth for us that we've got this thing. When, Jesus, when, when God judges the old earth, he covers it in water. 
But when new creation waits with this eager anticipation, as Amos teaches me, even the mountains are going to drip with wine. The hills are going to flow with it. Because actually when he resurrects to make it new, it will be a joyous day full of celebration and expectation. Just like a wedding. Just like a day in which we long for and we look forward to and we will enjoy this new wine of celebration and goodness of God for all that we ever do. When he resurrects the earth, when he resurrects each of us, there is going to be a celebration feast and a party in which the wine of God flows for all eternity. Man, that is good. I want us to stand now because I'm going to read to us one final scripture. I've got a bit, I know I went in a bit of a scripture fest today, but there's no better place to get these truths from. The Bible is full of these truths. And I would just say, you know, I'm going to read Isaiah 25 to us about the fact that death is going to get swallowed up forever. But as I read Isaiah 25 to us, I just want to say, you know, if, if you're sitting here, you can come to the table as an act of faith in him. And that's a trust in the fact that Jesus is victorious and our hope is in him and him alone. And if you're not yet in Christ, believe. Repent. Come to the table again. Ask him to draw you into his eternal kingdom for all eternity. He welcomes you to the table. It's not shut yet because he hasn't returned. He's a little caveat the day he returns the table closes the day he returns he comes to judge the living and the dead either the day that we die or the day that he returns that is a moment in which he says it's finished I'm here the bridegroom has come the marriage has started the wedding feast has begun I'm going to judge the living and the dead and I just say please if you're watching if you're listening take that seriously our judge is good and he's loving and he's kind. Let me just read Isaiah 25 to us. And we're going to sing. God will swallow up death forever. O oh Lord, you are my God. I exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. You have made the city a heap the fortified city of ruin, the foreigners' palaces is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a clouds. So the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on his mountain the cover that is cast over all peoples the veil that is spread over all nations he will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken 
It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We've waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on His mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in His place, as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And He will spread out His hands in the midst of it, as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim, but the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands and the high fortifications of his wall will bring down, lay low and cast the ground to the dust. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation and builds walls as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keep faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Amen. That's the word of God.